I've never done an interview this early. <laughs> so usually it takes me like a little bit to like get my full self. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me again today. It's your host, Natalia. And today I am here with the incredible Sarah Scarcelli. She is the Deputy Director of Analysis, Planning, Programs, and Learning at the State Department. And it's the Peace and Con... No, I'm going to say it wrong. (laughs) That's okay. Even people within the department get it wrong. It's the Conflict and Stabilization Operations Bureau. Your title is a mouthful. And I... (laughs) don't understand um but you're allowed to introduce yourself (laughs) so sarah tell us a little bit about you okay so yes i'm the deputy director of the office of analysis planning programs and learning which we call apple for short um we love our acronyms at the the state department (laughs) and government and um and then cso the conflict and stabilization operations bureau is the part of the department that helps us to uh, anticipate prevent and respond to conflict which uh, is a lot of words to basically say that, you know, politics are relationships, basically, Mm -hmm. and conflict are when the relationships have gotten really bad. And so we're trying to help prevent the relationships from getting to those extreme levels, or if they have gotten, you know, to a conflict situation that we can help dial it back and bring it back to a normal diplomatic um, relationship. So it's, we like to say it's like diplomacy on steroids, basically. Um, and then as far as our office is concerned, we're the part of CSO that has both the big data analytics and all of the process and procedure stuff, the way in which we do our business, and then the different kinds of themes that come up a lot in conflict and stabilization, like preventing atrocities or countering violent extremism. Um, so making sure that we're not starting over from scratch mm-hmm. every time we do um, something in a new place. Um, but my shorthand way of describing myself is in this position, which I absolutely love this job, is that I'm the queen of the nerds in the Bureau of Misfits <laughs> <laughs> because there are so many big brains that I get to work with. <laughs> and queen of the Misfits. It's exactly. Well, I mean. Name the episode. I'm just letting you know now. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> so, but it's true because, you know, uh, Diplomacy is very, you know, it's state to state, very formal conversations. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about like how you should go to a village in, you know, the middle of a country and not in the capital and have mm-hmm. a realistic conversation about why are you pissed off and yeah. what would be a way to walk you back from being pissed off so that you don't, you don't have to have a violent demonstration, for example. Um, and so <clears throat> that's very different for how the department works and it's normal it's comfort zone and it's comfort zone is you know big official cables that are sent Uh back and forth and demarches and all of those you know 19th century terms you know (laughs) and and we're talking about no let's just sit around and have a conversation and find out you know uh who do you think's in charge and why do you think they're in charge and do you agree they're in charge and how do we help you feel Uh empowered because a lot of times conflict comes down to do you feel empowered 
Um, and then the people I get to work with are so smart and dedicated and and just a little bit nuts because if you work on conflict, you <laughs> yes. have to be yes. a bit of an optimist. Um, but, you know, that's what makes it great. And then they do great work and I get to, like, help make it shine so that, you know, it's like, okay, you've had this big, amazing thought. Now I'm mm-hmm. going to boil it down to the 30-second, you know, what the policymaker has time to read kind of thing, what the decision makers have time for. Or, you know, um, if you just add these these words, then I think it'll really pop. And then, you know, get to take credit for the work because that's mm. what people in charge <laughs> get to do. <laughs> But no, so it's been, I've been in this position now for two years and with uh, the department now for about seven, and it's been really great. That's awesome. So we, because we actually met at the stabilization symposium um, that happened in June, and this, I think, is the first interview I've done for the podcast that's the closest related to my studies. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody else has been like, I'm like completely different um spectrum so it's kind of cool to like geek out with somebody who's actually doing Mm -hmm. uh the work that I talk about and sit in class and study and want to do so how do you I guess kind of how did you get to this position how did you get to state you were like fresh off from college or grad school and you were like hey it's me hire me yeah um and, and by the way, my biggest sympathies to you as you're <laughs> going to embark on this journey. And it's not it's easy. A, it's very long and I'm very tired. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sure. Um, so my path uh, to the State Department, um, my other job is that I am a lieutenant colonel in the New York Air National Guard. Um, but before that, I was active duty Air Force intelligence. Um, and my primary responsibility is I was stationed in, in uh, Ramstein, Germany. Total hardship to be, you know, in your mid-20s living in Germany. Um, but also, you know, during the surge of the different, you know, wars. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of, of, of uh, there was of some upheaval, but also, I'm not going to lie, living in Germany was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my job primarily was to brief these generals on, it was almost like the news in some ways because we were giving them the the brief information but of course there's intelligence added in there so mm-hmm. but if, if you compare it to being kind of like a newscaster it's a pretty good approximation for mm-hmm. what i would do and then we would give our assessment of where we thought this particular situation might go so if a coup was going to happen for example in africa then we would as the air force probably have to help evacuate american citizens so the general wants to know before the coup happens it's going to happen mm-hmm. as an example so i'm briefing on darfur and i have my epiphany moment where i realize that even if we were to to get more involved in darfur because at the time we were mostly just responsible for you know support to the mission we weren't involved and that if we were, um, that the military could stop people shooting at one another, but they mm-hmm. couldn't actually change the reason they were shooting at each other, mm-hmm. that those underlying causes was not their job. And I went, oh, man, I need a new job. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I loved the military, which is why I still serve uh, part-time, mm-hmm. but I wanted to, do, to be involved in preventing the reasons people were fighting in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so after uh, my last uh, assignment, I um, went to grad school uh, at Fordham for International Political Economy and Development. 
another mouthful. Yeah, you, you like these mouthfuls, man. If I had thought about the, how much of a pain it would be to say all of that, I might have gotten a shorter <laughs> sounding degree. But um, no, and so because uh, I wanted to learn more about political economy and then uh, got so, so lucky by becoming a presidential management fellow mm. um, coming out of grad school, which is how I got in the state. That's so cool. Yeah. So you were in the military. Did you do military right out of high school or right out of college? Right out of college. Right out of college. And how was that being a woman in the military? So. Because what years were was that? Was that um, I was Bush? In, was that Obama? It was Bush. It was 0203, I guess. I guess I got in in 03, and I came off active duty in 08. Mm-hmm. So um, we saw Obama uh, get elected while I was still, mm-hmm. or actually it was just after I got out. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, in fact, my last day of the Air Force was September 15, 2008, which was the day the stock market crashed. And I went, you just quit your job. That's a terrible move. <laughs> Let me yeah. quit my job. Like, I know nobody else has any money to give me, but it's fine. Guys. Yeah, it's like, everything will be fine. You've got mm-hmm. a year and a half of grad school. Mm-hmm. It'll be okay. Um yeah, so uh, so yeah, it was the Bush years, and um, I would say, like in my officer training class, there was about one there was about one woman for every seven guys was wow. the ratio. Um, but then in Intel, for probably a variety of reasons, there tended to be more women, so the balance was a little bit better. But was Intel more of like a desk kind of job versus? being out in the field kind of job yes um although the air force is kind of strange in that you know in the army a large number of the people are part of the fighting force in some capacity Mm -hmm. in the air force if you're not a pilot or a navigator Mm -hmm. you're part or air crew of some other capacity Mm -hmm. you're you're part of the support staff so there's Mm -hmm. a lot of people who do support jobs Mm -hmm. like like finance like personnel I mean, the, the Army and the other services have those too, but I think that's part of the reason why you have folks like me who are not super athletic <laughs> but want to do military service and yeah. can, can do that. Yeah. Did, um, did you come from, like, a military family, or were you the first one? I was the first one. I hung really? out with the ROTC kids in college, um, and I didn't finish the program because I didn't really know if that was what was for me and mm-hmm. I also was working in college and you can't like ROTC is a big time commitment mm-hmm. but um, then after I graduated into again another recession um, <laughs> and it's like okay I have a BA in political science and, mm-hmm. and in history and I'm in the middle of rural South Carolina in 2003 yeah I need a job mm-hmm. um, and no kidding um, I was at the Huddle House. Have you heard of this? Mm-mm. It's like the Waffle House, but it's a much more regionalized version <laughs> of it. It's like it's like the it's the like the store brand of the Waffle House. Yeah, yeah exactly. Is it like that? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if any South Carolinians are listening. They may not take they may take offense to that characterization. Okay, I'm but so sorry. <laughs> I don't know, but it was so I was there and I'm contemplating my future in life and I thought about grad school but then I thought no I'm too burned out so what am I going to do and a recruiter walks in and I went oh yeah that Air Force thing (laughs) let me go back yeah so I finished my Patty Milder whatever I was eating Mm -hmm. and and right across the street from the Huddle House was the recruiting station so I signed up to be an officer 
How did your family react to that? What was that like going home? Like, I got this degree. I know I said I was going to get a job. I have a job. Mm. It's just not what you expected. Oh, no, they were psyched. Um, I had started out college as an engineering major and Mm. then quickly realized that was not for me, Mm -hmm. like I think a lot of engineering majors do. (laughs) Um, And so my parents were probably like, oh, thank God she has a job that's going to pay, you know, take care of her as Mm -hmm. opposed to what are are you going to do with this useless degree kind of thing. (laughs) So, no, I think they were thrilled. Um, And then my mother actually had, she had never joined but she had gone through the recruiting process mm. um to be an officer in the army and long story but basically it didn't work out and i think she, that's one of her chief regrets so we hadn't really talked about that like that mm-hmm. wasn't part of my decision but mm-hmm. once i decided to go it became one of those sarah is now going to do what i should have done so mm-hmm. very supportive and wanting to serve and in, in yeah. that kind of way that's so cool. Thank you for your service, number one. Oh, thanks. You're like, I didn't do much. I was like, but you did something. Mm-hmm. And and you were in, so when did you get stationed in Germany? Like uh, right right away or a couple of years in? Pretty much it was my main tour because Intel school takes a while and you have to wait for your clearance and then you've got school. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got to Germany in February of five and my tour was up in July of 8 so I just basically kept extending until they wouldn't let me anymore and then my National Guard uh, unit is the sister unit to my unit out in Germany so then I actually because grad school was going to start like it was almost, it was mm-hmm. the wrong time of year so um, they actually just put me right back out on order so I didn't actually leave Germany until about July of 2009 that sounds so nice <laughs> Uh, yeah, it is. Um, and what did, what was your experience like being in Germany, but like also being in the military, but also being young? Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. We, we worked really, really oh, yeah. hard, for sure. But one of the nice things about doing Intel is you can't take your work home with you. It's impossible. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we worked hard, played hard. And so you have this community of, of Americans who are all in their mid-20s who are all lieutenants and captains you know and you know if you don't have a family a lot of disposable income honestly (laughs) so you know I mean you know the travel and then you have like Ryanair that's really cheap flights um Mm -hmm. so it wasn't unheard of you know before a three-day weekend um and sometimes the military would give you a family day so that it became a four-day weekend (laughs) and which is you can do a reasonable amount of travel oh yeah um you'd have somebody walk down the hall and say on a Tuesday, hey, I was thinking about Ireland this weekend. What do you think? And you'd say, yeah, okay. And you just pop off to Ireland. Like, that's a wonderful, beautiful time. You know, you can never go back to that, though, too. I don't think if if I was stationed there now as an old person, Mm -hmm. I don't think it would (laughs) work. Germany is amazing. Um, I love Germany. I've been to Berlin. Oh, yeah? Yeah. But I wasn't there for long. I was only there for, like, a weekend. Um, But, yeah, I would love to love to go back one day because it was so lovely mm-hmm. and just see more of it yeah. um did you have any issues in terms of getting respect maybe of, of being someone who say like didn't I don't want to say like not worked up the ranks because so when you come out of college you can go straight to officer mm-hmm. training was there any like 
animosity. Yeah. There you go, yeah. words. <laughs> um, for you coming in and just being like, hey, I'm going to command all of you now. Or, hey, I'm like a woman. I'm going to command all of you now. No, there is. It's The military is pretty good about the rank mm-hmm. um, and respecting the rank. There is a general like stereotype about how lieutenants are dumb and don't know a lot and mm-hmm. try to like throw their rank around. So one of the things you pick up really early on is that your senior NCOs, your non-commissioned officers, you may outrank them, but they they know what they're doing and you should listen to them, Mm -hmm. and especially your chiefs. Don't be the dummy that doesn't (laughs) listen to what the chief is saying. So, you know, and that was both genders. Like, if you Mm -hmm. were the person throwing your rank around and you were a lieutenant, things were not going to go well for you regardless. About the only thing is I think the military, like a lot of careers, I think women felt the if you're assertive, you're bitchy stereotype versus if you're assertive and you're a man, then you're just assertive. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think a little bit of that happened. But, you know, I think for the most part it was, oh, this person's competent and so I'm going to actually rely on this person Mm -hmm. a lot. Um, And the gender didn't really play into that assessment that much. Mm -hmm. And I've often wondered too, um, you know, the guys not that it was a given and not that they didn't have to work for it, but Mm -hmm. it was sort of an assumption that they could go into the military. So if you're a woman choosing to be in the military, Mm -hmm. you had, like, I'd say statistically speaking, you probably wanted it more, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like, you, you, you chose that, and it was a more deliberate choice than it would be for a man. And so maybe I'm just stereotyping and using like my very small sample size to make generalizations which <laughs> mm-hmm. we do um but i feel like the women wanted it more mm. and there were some folks that's that were clearly there of both genders because they wanted that college degree and they were paying yeah. back their four years and that's totally fine and mm-hmm. they, they were doing good work but like if i hadn't had my epiphany i would have made it a career and i think there were a lot st- like um Percentage-wise, I think there were more women in that boat mm-hmm. than there were men. And um, that wonderful uh, quote from um, Scandal about you have to work <laughs> twice as hard for half as much. Oh, like, I so think... true. It is so true. <laughs> I think there was a little bit of that mm-hmm. going on. Yeah. And did you feel like you wanted it? Yes. More than other people? Yeah, I think I, think I did want it mm-hmm. a lot. And, you know... Certainly in that bunch, there's some competitiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially early on in my time, they'd realized they'd hired too many officers. Mm. And then they did a reduction in forces. Um, so luckily, Intel was in a position where we didn't have to um, kick anybody out against their will. But there were people that were kicked out just because they had too many people in their career field. Um, But there was a lot of anxiety up until that point of, Mm -hmm. oh, how are they going to rank us? How are they going to decide who gets to stay and gets to go? We have, you know, zero career to base that on. So, like, what's that going to be based on, you know? And um, so that was, a you know, a brief competitive moment of a couple months. Mm -hmm. But, like, for the most part, it was a collegiate atmosphere, I think. Can you talk a little bit more about your epiphany? Because you said that if you hadn't (laughs) had your epiphany, you would have, you know, made the military your career. The lifestyle of Mm. the military is wonderful. And the people that choose that that career, you know, there's that 
desire to serve, that's something I cherish. And Mm -hmm. being around other people who also feel that way, you know, um, was was a great part of it. Um, The culture is is great. The certainly I I still see a lot of dedication here at state. Um, But the idea that you know, of course you're going to do this because it's the mission and it has to get done. And mm-hmm. like, there's no questioning whether, and it's not a, it's not a forcing you thing. It's just, you know, and, and it's not like the military didn't have its share of slackers too. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. But that general pervasive, of course we're going to get it done. That was, that was a good culture, I think. And there's also like one of the weird on, you know, not very tangible aspects was when you're in a very controlled environment, it's actually weirdly liberating. Mm. So I didn't have to think about what I was going to wear every day, <laughs> which was amazing because then I had time to think about other stuff that actually matters. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, what am I going to wear? Same outfit I did yesterday. Mm-hmm. And um, or the other kinds of rules and structure, like for me, structure is a great thing because you know where your limits are and you don't have to think about those things. I don't have to worry about what I'm going to do. I'm going to follow the checklist. Like, and then that gives you the time to have the big thoughts about your actual job. Um, and even, even down to the military having some say in where you live, like you get to, to choose, you know, put your assignment requests forward, but ultimately it's their choice. Like there's something kind of weirdly liberating about, well, I mean, that's where I'm stationed and I'm going to make the most of it. And then you have that, that, you know, make the most of your situation mm-hmm. attitude. Um, but, but the topic of, <laughs> of fighting wars, um, again, like I think that those are two, my two jobs are kind of two sides of the same coin. Um, and I'm glad I still continue to serve. But if I could do what I do for the State Department, but in a military style culture and environment, mm-hmm. I would absolutely do that. And that's why one of the reasons I like CSO is because we were created out of the thought at the end of the Iraq war, the main 2003 big invasions over mission accomplished, and the realization that there's no civilians to hand this off to. That's, mm-hmm. and they said, you know, now what are we gonna do? Like, that's why we were originally created. And we've had many different versions of our organization and how we mm-hmm. work. But um, the underlying assumption that we are the counter civilian counterparts to the military has never really gone away. And so there's a lot of military culture here. So I find that very comfortable. I've never heard the State Department referred to as the civilian branch of the military. This particular bureau. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I was like, I've never heard that as a reference, but I haven't been here that long. So who knows? <laughs> Yeah, when I first moved here, it was interesting how many military people there were, because I just never grew up with that. Mm, mm -hmm. Um, And it was like everybody I met was either in the military or they worked for the government. And And in my mind, just because I never grew up around that, I didn't realize, like, they lived among us. Like, I don't know. (laughs) The aliens are among you, yes. Well, I didn't, like, I don't know. In my mind, they, like, lived off somewhere. Like, but to have, like, people that, like, go to my church or, like, I see walking down the street or, you know, Mm -hmm. or in my classes. And they're like, yeah, like, I'm in the military. And they have, like, very real positions in the military. 
Mm-hmm. And not that, I mean, obviously all positions are real, but, like, you learn, like, their rank or something, and it's, like, very high-ranking. And you're, just, like, you're just here? Like, you right. just have, you're just shopping? Like, what are you? Like, I don't know, that type of, they're real people. I guess, I know that sounds so silly, and mm-hmm. all of my friends that work for the government or military make fun of me whenever I say it, but, like, I didn't grow up with any of that around me. One of, only one of my best friends, her dad is, like, a general Mm-hmm. And that was it. There was nobody else. Like, um, but yeah, I I just find that really interesting to think of this kind of being tangential to that. So is it there are a lot mm-hmm. of military people in your specific bureau? There are a lot of folks who either are former military or still serve mm-hmm. part time. Um, there's also folks who, even though they've always been civilians, have served alongside the military in different capacities. So we did a lot of the early Afghanistan work for the PRTs. Um, this is before I joined. Mm-hmm. Um, another one of our big missions was, if you heard about the counter-LRA, the whole getting Joseph Kony in, mm. in Africa. So we had folks that co-deployed with special forces because... Yes, it's a security mission to try and get folks, but to, to try to counter the, the Lord's Resistance Army, the terrorist group in that in that part of Africa. But also, they were trying to convince people to leave, to defect from the organization. And so that is essentially a diplomatic question. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a messaging and it's a politics question. And it's making sure that, you know, the governments you're working with don't have this policy where they're going to lock people up for years and years because then nobody's going to leave. But at the same time, you don't want to give them, you know, a ticker tape parade because mm-hmm. then the, the communities that they wronged are going to be upset. So there's that whole relationship part of it was the diplomat's responsibility. And then also, this is multiple country because, of course, it's cross-border. So coordinating the different governments involved in that mission Um And so it was an incredibly effective way to try to get folks to leave this organization instead of having to kill them, which Mm -hmm. is the counterterrorism solution. And certainly they're they're always going to be true believers in any organization that that they're not going to just defect and, Mm -hmm. you know, but that helped in that case. So those kinds of missions involved people who may or may not have had military experience, but certainly when you embed with special forces, you pick Mm -hmm. up the culture and the lingo. And so when you transitioned here to the State Department, did you always start off in this particular bureau? I had actually, I interned with them Mm -hmm. uh, before I got my position, and then I started in the Africa Bureau Mm -hmm. uh, doing economic policy. So my first job with the department was trying to get American businesses to try and invest in Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I did that for about a year and a half, and then the position opened up in CSO in March 2013. So, And then I've been with CSO ever since. So kind of transitioning a little bit, not too much, um, but just thinking... You coming into the State Department, coming from the military, and I think any any type of government or any type of military job is considered very male-dominated, and you coming into that position, having and, and still already having so much experience, and like still being like a lieutenant, was it was it hard? Did you face pushback? Like, what was one of the most cha- like biggest challenges for you? Um, I think the big challenge for me is 
in the military, if you don't know how to do something, they will train you. They will give you instruction. They will give you a checklist. They will mentor you. They will they will not throw you into a situation where you don't know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. In the State Department, especially the State Department of old, less so now, mm-hmm. it's figure it out for yourself. Mm. And if that was sort of told to me at some point and the light bulb went on a, a bit, but up until that point, I think I struggled because... I kept waiting for somebody to tell me what to do mm-hmm. <laughs> and nobody told me what to do <laughs> and I also just had a particularly cantankerous boss uh, mm. who was very he was very old school and uh, I had a moment of feeling better about it you know months and months later when he ended up working with another of my colleagues and she also struggled with him and I was like oh it's not me it's mm-hmm. him um, <laughs> <laughs> isn't that always such a relief though? yeah yeah. I feel that. I <laughs> do. Um, you know, so there was, and now looking back, it's like I, I've had those moments where I think, oh gosh, Sarah, of course you just needed to do X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. And I probably could have figured some of that out on my own. But also, if he had just like taken a minute to mentor mm-hmm. me and show me what to do, you know, because I had no experience in working with businesses trying to convince Mm -hmm. them to move their business to Africa that's not something I'd ever studied in school um and so yeah fortunately I had one of my early mentors was our deputy director which I always think about her and then now I'm a deputy director and I feel inadequate because she was (laughs) lovely but she had on her calendar every week or every two weeks Mm -hmm. a a time spot and you could come to her office and you didn't have to but it was always available to you if Mm -hmm. you needed it and that was one of my early sounding boards with how to deal with this really difficult boss and she she recognized that I needed that mentorship and leadership and guidance Mm -hmm. and gave it to me and then having that safe space to be able to vent and then figure out realistic ways to deal like that was huge so is that something you try to do now with your employees? <laughs> I do, but I don't think I, I don't have, I've, I've thought about the calendar idea mm-hmm. every once in a while. Um, but yeah, I think um, I'm certain that folks feel like they can come in here and I've had mm-hmm. a lot of those kinds of conversations. I feel like the part where I fall down is having it be routine and, and not ad hoc, but mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm quite sure that, that folks feel like they can come to me and have come mm-hmm. to me to try to sort out how to solve their problems and that's one of the things I love about this job is being is that if I'm doing my job right I'm doing very little work they're the ones doing the work and I'm solving their problems with Mm -hmm. them um, and helping to block and tackle for them so that they can get the good work done. So did you find your passion for this type of work before joining the military or while because like I know you had your like epiphany Mm -hmm. um but, and you're like, I, I want to do something different. I want to do the same kind of work, but just in a different way. Did you, did, did you find that passion because you were in the military kind of doing that intel work? Um, probably it was part of the military and figuring out this is what I wanted to do. But um, I think I would also would have been happy doing economic development. I think that's where I kind of was heading mm-hmm. as a you know, a broad, one of the broad ways to try to prevent conflict. Um, I've since working here, realized that there are lots of reasons conflict happens and that's very minimal. And Mm -hmm. I'm glad that that's not how it ended up. But I think 
always, and if you talk to my mother, she would say, oh, yes, <laughs> absolutely. I've always wanted to be a world saver. Like, mm-hmm. there was no chance I was going to be an accountant, you know? <laughs> Unless it was an accountant for, like, the president or something. <laughs> like. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think, I've, or even if I had had, you know, uh, a, a more run-of-the-mill job, I certainly mm-hmm. would have volunteered my way into world saving. You mm-hmm. know? Do you, so now, like, with, because you're still part-time with the military, yep. right? And now you're the deputy director. What is it like trying to balance all of that and, like, Still, I'm assuming, like, have some type of life that's outside. Like, you know, sleeping, going to the movies, like, those yeah. little things. What is it, what is that like for you? Yeah, that's that's tough. Um, you know, I, I joke that the military is my hobby because uh-huh. it, it, it takes up a lot of time like a hobby would. And I think that's part of being honest so I don't feel like I'm failing at life. If, yeah. You know, you know, I haven't made time for a hobby. Well, I do have a hobby, and it, it's a pretty time-consuming one. Um Actually, this is interesting timing. Next week, I'm actually headed out to Germany uh, for about six weeks for my military job. Um, and it, it's really because I realized I was in my current position, my responsibility is I help us I, I help us get ready for doing exercises. Um, mm-hmm. and I help the planning conferences at the exercises. And so, so, for example, if they want to do an exercise and they want everybody to use a new computer system, I tend to be the person that says, remember, the guard only works two days a month. They can't train on this computer system mm-hmm. and, like, help them think through those problems. So I was going to these conferences and trying to pop in and out, and it just, I wasn't being effective. And so it was the tough realization that even though my civilian job will miss me, I have to dedicate some serious time mm-hmm. in uniform to be effective at that job. And so I'm getting ready to go. I mean, it doesn't, again, it doesn't hurt. It's in Germany. <laughs> there are worse things. Um, but, but yeah, that's, that's the realization. And I'm, I'm feeling angst and guilt about leaving my team behind mm-hmm. because, but I know I need to, because I need to make sure I'm successful in that career. But then I also think, um, yeah, I think it's important to have work-life balance to the extent you can and try to have hobbies and try to think of things that you can do, even, like, mindless things. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know, what, what do you do for fun? Do you have, like, I know you were talking about your schedule, too. You I don't know, have time my schedule is so crazy. Um, I really like going to the movies. Like, mm-hmm. I really love, yeah, I really love, like, going to the movies. Um, I will sometimes just be like working and I'll be like I think I'm gonna go see a movie like I'll you know get out of work and mm-hmm. and just pop on over see a show like see a movie see what's playing um that and going by myself which is really lovely yeah I think that going to the movies by yourself is truly the best thing and I feel like everyone should invest some time in doing that um Agreed. Just, yeah getting some popcorn sitting by yourself um, I'm usually traveling with like a bunch of bags, as you can see, but it's it's the best thing. Um, I usually like to do that. Yeah, that's about it because I'm usually like studying or working or podcasting or mm-hmm. I don't know, running around, spending time on the metro and the buses. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I really like to go to the movies. Um, and I think I kind of think when you like love what you do, it doesn't feel like work. Because I, like, I love doing this. Like, I love talking to women, mm-hmm. love hearing their stories. Um, 
And so, like, this for me is also kind of, like, a downtime. So if I can make time, it's like, okay, I'm going to fit this into my schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's why I was like, it's fine if I come here at 8 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Left my house at 7 in the morning. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is what I've got. The sun wasn't even out. Yeah. It was still dark. I was like, is it getting to that time of year where the sun is not out? Um, but yeah, I, I guess this is kind of what I do for fun, mm-hmm. but it's also like running a business, <laughs> <laughs> like coordinating with everybody. But yeah. Um, but yeah, you, cause you don't live in DC, right? You don't I live, live in, in Silver Spring. Is that nice to like get away? Cause like, I know I don't live in the city either. And I really love the fact that I don't <laughs> live in the city. Uh, it was a difficult move, actually. I liked living in the city. Really? Because um, I moved this summer. Mm. Um, about the time we met, actually, I oh. was moving. You um, were doing all that and moving? Oh, my <laughs> Lord. Um, yeah, uh, but um, my I call him my future husband because he, he has a big proposal plan, but he has not yet done it. <laughs> so... <laughs> Okay, actually, since I'm on a podcast, I will even give you... Okay, so I call him my Beyonce. You're Beyonce. Because he's my before fiancé. <laughs> Is he going to propose while singing Beyonce? Is that... Uh, maybe. I don't know what he's got planned. That's. But um, I'll maybe make that subtle suggestion that, you know, what would be perfect is if you were singing Beyonce. He would do it, too, if, <laughs> if that was part of his plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the reality of my little two-bedroom apartment in the city was in all of our stuff and all of, you know, that was not happening. So, yeah, we moved to a proper house in Silver Spring, which I love. But, yeah, um, the whole being in the city and doing the city thing. Um, but Silver Spring is very walkable and there's still metro and all that. So it's just, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. I like being outside the city. I think probably one day depending on how long I stay here, like, I'll have to move in. Mm. But I like where I live. I like Alexandria. It's cute. I live still, like, I live, so Alexandria's also massive. Yeah, I was going to say where. But I live in Delray. So I'm still really, really close to the city, and Delray is super, super cute, and Mm -hmm. there's a bunch of restaurants, and, like, I can walk around. Mm -hmm. Um, I live 15-minute walking distance from a Target and a movie theater, so all is well with the world. (laughs) Um, So, like, for for me, I like that, like, as much as I like cities, I like the idea of being away from, like, the hustle and bustle, but still having stuff to do do was a big thing for me when I moved here and Delray like gives like the perfect balance of all of that because you can still do a bunch of stuff but I don't have to be like in the city to do all that stuff right um the biggest thing is the commute into the city because I live six and a half miles away from here and it takes an hour, sometimes hour <laughs> change to get it. I was like, guys, it's really just six miles. Like, I don't feel like it should take this long. Um, no, I know what you mean. But yeah, just kind of ba- balancing all of that. And I don't know, just being a, being a lady's hard. <laughs> it's just hard, man. I'm tired. Yeah. It's tiresome. But this is not about me. It's about to you. <laughs> so you're, well, that's going to be a huge transition, like getting married and doing all of the stuff that you already do mm-hmm. are you like I don't know I've talked to them and they feel like they can't fail at what mm-hmm. they do 
um, because if we fail, then it kind of gives this authority to be like, see, well, she can't do it. They all must not be able to do it kind of thing. Do you ever have that sense of pressure? Um, I do have the pressure to not fail, um, but I don't, I don't necessarily feel it tied to gender. I feel mm-hmm. it tied to the fact that there is a lot in this role and there's always more you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, like we were talking about having appointments on my calendar. Mm-hmm. Like we actually just merged offices and so now we're an office of like 30 people. Mm-hmm. I can't have 30 hours of my 40 hour work <laughs> week set aside for people to just stop by. Um, but, or, or you know, you, you read up on, you know, different management tips and then you think, oh, if I started doing this other practice, that would be a great device as a manager. But then also at CSO, one of the things I love is that the managers are also expected to step into the substance. And so mm. that's why you saw me presenting at that symposium mm-hmm. is because I also work on the stabilization cases and helping, like, it's so exciting to help the department figure out how to stabilize countries in an efficient way and not make some of the same mistakes we made in Iraq and Afghanistan, pouring money into things that didn't work. So, like, that's really cool. But then I have to balance getting to play, if you will, in stabilization Mm -hmm. and being a manager and a leader and taking care of my people. Um, And so I feel that fear of failure of getting that balance right, getting it right for me, getting it right for them, and like how many hours of the day and how much of my energy will I have to pour into this? Because Mm -hmm. even if you go home, if you're exhausted, Mm -hmm. then you don't have time and energy for your hobbies, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, it's fear that that I'm not giving this job enough and fear that I'm letting it consume me at the Mm -hmm. same time. Mm -hmm. But I don't... I don't feel that gender plays a lot into this. Actually, I've weirdly found... I had a supervisor um, that tried deliberately to try to hire for diversity. Mm. And I I found myself having to talk him into a white guy who was the most qualified <laughs> candidate <laughs> because he was the most qualified candidate, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so uh, he's kind of maybe an outlier in, like, that hyper-awareness. Mm. But, um, but, yeah, I would say that there's... There have been a few random moments across my career where I've felt the gender divide, but on balance, mostly it has been about, are you competent? Can you do the job? Mm-hmm. And and getting the respect uh, of, uh, because I can do the job. Do you find that being like a luxury? Because I, because you're not the first woman I've heard to say that, but I wonder if that is a luxury that few women get to experience because you on the other hand I have heard more so not just like on the podcast but just like in life saying like it's it's really hard to prove what I am or who I am outside of certain spaces and whether it's like unconsciously or consciously these biases because your supervisor was like consciously aware of biases that can happen and so sometimes it's like okay do I give it to this white guy or do I give it to someone who is maybe like a little less qualified, but we get that diversity and like we can train them into this role. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, but also you worry about like, am I just ticking off a box? So it's just all of the, these hard 
Yeah, I mean, certainly I am a a strong, assertive woman, mm. and I have had moments in my career where I feel that the reason I was pushed back against was not just because people didn't like what I was asserting, it was because I was a woman asserting mm-hmm. it. I certainly had those moments. And, um, like, I remember um, when I was in my officer training, like, I was the one that was continuing to push us even when, you know, we had our minimum requirements. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, guys, let's do more. And they were like, what are you doing? You know, and I, I feel pretty strongly that, that was probably gender-based. Or mm-hmm. And I always, like, I got this assignment to Germany, right? Um, and it was up to the, the, the staff. So I worried that uh, to, to assign who got to go. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've, I've always wondered if it, it was, like, the slimy guy that was in charge who was like, mm-hmm. I'll give all the best assignments to the ladies, you know? Mm-hmm. So I've also wondered how much of my advantage has been yeah. related to being a woman. Um, or if that same um, hyper-aware boss, like, he picked me originally to be his deputy. That's mm-hmm. where I first got this position. Did I get it because I was a woman? Mm-hmm. You know, was there somebody else he might have picked? You know, so those are those questions do come up. Um, but again, I think I think for the most part, I think my resume and my you know my work speaks for itself. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. Like in the back of my mind, sometimes I wonder, like because of my skin tone or because that I'm a woman like will am I is that why I'm getting certain certain things which I've heard like two sides of you know well just take it because like it gets you in the room anyway and then when you're there prove that you did really deserve to be there because I've had people be like well you know you're only here because this versus my actual qualifications right. to do certain things. And I th- I think it's sad that we as women have to think about that because I don't think that's necessarily a thing that men will have in the back of their heads. Oh, no, absolutely not. You know, like, yeah, when right. they get the job, like, I was fully qualified. When I get the job or, like, opportun- not even job, just op- certain opportunities yeah. to do certain things, like, I worry about, you know, what went into that decision. And I right. hope it's because I'm qualified because I am qualified or I do have the right credentials or whatever um, to get me into this space. But yeah, that is definitely something that's always in the back of my head whenever I'm in any situation because I'm terrified (laughs) that, you know, I don't, because I worry about people seeing me that way. Yeah. Do you feel like once you get into certain positions and you like work twice as hard, at least at first, just to be Mm -hmm. like, no, 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 like I was really meant to be here. Right. No, I think that's right. And I think um, with the deputy director position, when I first got that, uh, is a great example where I think there were some people, because I actually rose pretty fast through this mm-hmm. organization. So even, you know, that mm-hmm. also was probably a question in a lot of people's minds. Um, and and so, but then all of a sudden, the administration changed and my mm-hmm. boss got moved up because all of the political appointees mm-hmm. left. And so then all of a sudden, now I'm an acting office director. Mm-hmm which is pretty senior in this organization. And I'd had the deputy job for three months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, four months. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, there was a lot of people going, oh, really? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I did fine. Um, certainly made mistakes, like everybody mm-hmm. would. But 
you know, and we were kind of a small office at the time. That's why we've ended up merging with the mm-hmm. other office. And um, we are our own little band of, you know, you know, we were small but mighty, as I like to say. <laughs> Queen of the Misfits. Queen of the Misfits. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's, but you're right. Like, how many times does one have to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, do you have to prove that, no, no. I actually, he, he saw something in my interview mm-hmm. that showed that even though I was pretty quick to get here, I could do the job. Mm-hmm. So that leads me to my last question um, that I like to ask all my guests. Um, what do you think defines being a woman or womanhood? What does that look like for you? Ooh, that's hard because now there's all kinds of questions too about what about gender and what mm-hmm. does gender mean and, you know... And I've always been what do you, the, the kind of tomboyish mm-hmm. person, but like, does that make me not a woman? I don't think so. Um, I guess I would answer the question, I would say that it's whatever you want it to mean. And I don't think, I, what I'm thinking about is when I first joined the military, there were a couple of different reactions to different, by different women to being in a boys club. Mm-hmm. And one reaction is to try to be as much of a dude mm-hmm. as you can, which is an ultimately failed attempt because you're never going to out-dude an actual dude because mm-hmm. you're not one, right? Um, so you'll all at best be a second-class citizen in their system. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there were the women who were on the completely other side of the spectrum, and they were just, like, reading fashion magazines and caring about makeup. Like, I had a friend who said, you know, we talk about what would your career be if you weren't here, and she said, I would be doing hair and makeup. And I was like, how are we friends? I don't <laughs> understand this. <laughs> and, I mean, it was great. She did my hair and makeup for me because I couldn't do it. <laughs> but, and and then, I don't know, but, like, I felt like when I first joined the military, I spent more time with guys because they were closer in how I behaved than the mm-hmm. other women that I knew. And now in this position, I am friends with women because I don't know, did we all grow up and like- We got it together. We got it together, (laughs) we became more serious, you know? Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe women in their early 20s are told to be silly and flirtatious. And so like, you know, they, and and Mm -hmm. whereas the guys are encouraged to have serious thoughts and I had serious thoughts. So I hung out with other people having serious thoughts. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I didn't answer your question. I'm sorry. No, no, no. This is yours. This is all about you. <laughs> but uh, maybe I guess my answer would be is I would like womanhood to not have to be defined by labels. I would like all flavors of womanhood to be acceptable as womanhood. All flavors. I don't like that. It's like <laughs> ice cream. And who doesn't like ice cream? We're del- yeah. Anyway. No, that's great. Um All right, so we are going to take a short break and then be right back. All right, everybody, and we are back. It's your host, Natalia. And again, I'm here with Sarah. And this is not one of our normal segments, but I find it delightful. Um, it's going to be a funny story segment um, in which Sarah's going to tell a funny story. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Um, so all military funny stories start with, so there I was, so I'll do it properly. <laughs> um, so there I was, I had been selected for this amazing opportunity, probably one of the top five things that have ever happened to me, um, where I was sent to Bosnia for three months to mm. be the American representative to this officer training on how to be part of a peacekeeping force and how to work on a UN staff. Um, and officially I was there to learn those skills. Um, but unofficially, the course was mostly Bosnian army officers and a few internationals. And unofficially we were there also to provide some mentorship um, because many of them had never been on staffs before mm. uh, and did not have those kinds of experiences. So so that's that was the part of the deal. Um, and the class was about 35 officers, only two women, myself and a Slovenian officer. Um, and so at the start, they had this, they went out of their way to be accommodating to the fact that I was a female. <laughs> um, one of the things they would often do is they wanted me to go through doors first um, because I was a woman. And so you would see this whole line of them along the wall. <laughs> so they, they wouldn't go through the door. Like we had this very narrow hallway going into mm -hmm. the auditorium where we would have classes and they would all be lined up because they'd be waiting for me to go through the door first. And it's like, guys, this is not efficient. Come on. just. I know it's probably took more work for you to try and get down the hallway than for them to like line up and try to get yeah. so much. Yeah. But, you know, it, it was part of their culture and you know I was also there to, to observe the culture and by the way I have to just say that love the Balkans have a very mm -hmm. I'm still friends with some of the guys from the class and mm -hmm. they're lovely lovely people um, so at any rate uh, by the end of the class however I, I take it as a huge compliment that they were basically treating me the same as everybody mm -hmm. else um, and so you know um, expecting me to to, to buy drinks, for example, mm -hmm. for the group. Like if it was a, a drink buying occasion, mm -hmm. I was fair game to have to do that, <laughs> you know, or, um, you know, not holding the door, not standing in line mm -hmm. waiting for me. Just, you know, let's all walk in the door like normal people. Um, and I had one guy who paid me a huge compliment. I, or at least I take it as a huge compliment. He said, you know, you're not a man. You're, you're not a woman either. <laughs> you're something in between. And then I, I thinking yeah I'll take that that's good <laughs> but I, I think I think you probably didn't fit into his definition of what right either one was and so he's like I don't know how to place you and you're like I'm not here to be placed I'm here to go to class <laughs> no but I I really like that um and I thought it was very funny particularly <laughs> the end you're not a man but you're also not a woman right so you're something else <laughs> um I like that a lot so, Sarah, is there any um, thing you want to shout out? Any final thoughts? Anything? No, I just thank you uh, for coming up after the symposium and asking me to do this. Um, in terms of, you know, talking about making time for hobbies, like, mm -hmm. I'm so glad. I know I was a pain to, to track down. Oh, my gosh. No, but, no, no. Um, You're not even worse. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank God. Um, but, no, it's just these are the kinds of things I – I find really enjoyable and enriching in life. And so I really appreciate uh, the opportunity. Aww. Thank you for coming on the show. Yeah. Truly, it means so much. You have no idea. We're hearing 
letting me pick your brain for an hour, which is lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, so everyone, thank you so much for listening. Uh, you can please, please, please follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at prettyfacelady3. And go ahead and like us on Facebook at More Than a Pretty Face. And if you would like to say, hey, you want to come on the show, know somebody else that should come on the show, you want to sponsor the show because looking to sell out, um, please email at prettyfacewomen at mtapfpodcast.com. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye.